Hello, and welcome to the Work Alchemy podcast, conversations about impact, where entrepreneurs and leaders share how they have impact, the sweet moments, and the challenges. I'm your host, Ursula York. I help entrepreneurs grow successful businesses that make a difference in the world. Impact is more than mission, more than purpose, even more than your why. Impact is where your unique self and business meet the world and contribute to making it better for all of us. These stories are here to inspire and energize you so you can have your own unique impact. Today's guest on the podcast is Michelle Seiler Tucker. Michelle is a leading authority on buying, selling, and improving businesses, as well as increasing business revenue streams. She is the author of the book, Exit Rich, The 6P Method to Sell Your Business for Huge Profit. And she has sold hundreds of businesses to date and closes 90% of all offers she writes. Welcome to the podcast, Michelle. I'm really happy to have you here. Thank you, Ursula. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me on. So um, let's just get right down to it in terms of uh, selling your business. Uh, price and the amount that a a seller might make is obviously a big uh, factor for people. So the price of the business of a business is determined by its cash flow and profitability, you say in your book. So tell us more about that and and, and let's delve into that a little bit. All right. So yes, the price is based upon your EBITDA, earnings before interest, taxes, depreciation, amortization. But there's a lot of other factors that come into play. It's not mm-hmm. just about the revenues and the and the cash flow sure. and the EBITDA. It's mm-hmm. also about the synergies. You know, does the business operate on all six cylinders, all six Ps? Does the business have synergies that buyers are willing to pay more money for? And businesses that have over a million dollars in EBITDA typically trade at a higher multiple than no businesses under a million dollars in EBITDA. So mm. it's really important to identify, is that business operating all six cylinders, all six Ps? Does that business have synergies that the buyers are going to, you know, outbid? Because we can create a, a bidding war. I mean, if, if a business operates, if a business has over a million dollars in EBITDA and operates on all six cylinders and has those synergies, then we can typically, typically create a bidding war, getting our clients even more than what the business appraised for. Yeah, I noticed that uh, you devoted a whole chapter on creating a bidding war, and that's not something people necessarily think about. So, yeah, talk a little bit about that. Well, most people don't even think about selling their business, and that's the big problem. You know, eight out of 10 businesses don't sell. Mm -hmm. And the main reason they don't sell is because business owners never plan their exit. They never think about selling until a catastrophic event occurs. And internal or external, you know, internal being health issues, death, divorce, uh, partner disputes, external being um, COVID <laughs> is a good example. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. Hurricanes, tornadoes, fires, et cetera. Uh, and then, you know, when that happens, if you're trying to sell during a catastrophic event occurring, then the business is typically not doing well. Right. So the best time to sell a business is when it is doing well. As far as creating bidding wars, um, it's all about, like I said, identifying, you know, when we do evaluations, we look at six different methods. One of those is evaluating the company on the six Ps and looking at the synergies and evaluating those synergies. So if we know that we're going to have a lot of buyers for a certain business, because anytime we get a business that has an EBITDA over a million, two million, three million, we know we're going to have hundreds of buyers for that business because there's more buyers for good businesses than there are good businesses to buy. Okay. So we know that we're going to be able to create 
a bidding war and get, you know, 5, 10, 15 LOIs on that one business. So we'll go to market without a price because we want the market to tell us what they're willing to pay for these synergies versus us telling them what we're willing to accept. Sure. Well, you mentioned the pandemic and uh, what have you seen in the last year? Cause it's been kind of a crazy time for business in general. And well, it has, but, but here's, you know, here's, here's what so many people are not aware of. And it's shocking to me, actually. When I wrote my first book in 2013 called Sell Your Business for More Than It's Worth, I did the research and, you know, learned that 85 to 95% of all startups would go out of business, right? 85 to 95%. Mm-hmm. But then, you know, and I, I remember like 16, 17, 18, 19, I'm like, all these businesses are closing down. You drive past a strip center one day, business is open, the next day is closed. So when I wrote Exit Rich in 2019, 2020, I did the research again and realized that the business landscape has really flip-flopped. This is before COVID. Hmm. The business landscape has flip-flopped. So now it's only 30% of startups will go out of business. So those businesses one to five years used to be at great risk. Now there are only 30% of those will go out of business. However, the reason the business landscape has flip-flopped so much is because out of 27.6 million companies, those businesses that have been in business for 10 years, that are in business for 10 years or longer, 70% of those businesses will go out of business. 70%. This is before COVID. And you've heard about the public businesses like Toys R Us in business 75 years, drops, sure. you know, goes out of business. Right. Kmart, Stymart, Montgomery Ward, Dillard's, you know, not Dillard's, I'm sorry, not Dillard's, Please no dealers. I love my dealers. <laughs> <laughs> but Pier One, you know, GNC closed down um, 1,200 locations, and Godiva is now going out and out of. Um, oh no, Godiva. not Godiva! <laughs> they're closing. Well, I don't know if they're going out of business, but they're closing up 1,500 stores. Oh, wow, because retail's dead. Mm-hmm. So. Those are the public companies. What you're not hearing about are all the private businesses, you know, um, on every street sure. corner and every town and every state across our great nation. And these business owners, unfortunately, are forced to sell for pennies on the dollar, close their business, or even worse, file bankruptcy. And mm-hmm. when you file bankruptcy, you typically don't just lose your business assets, you lose your personal assets too, because most yeah. business owners commingle assets, which pierces the corporate veil, which pierces that protection. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, we've all heard this kind of uh, Cinderella story of a founder, usually a tech founder, who develops a company, and within two years, they've sold it for hundreds of millions of of dollars, if not more, and they happily either retire and uh, or go off and start another company. So, what's the reality behind that kind of short term? Well, um, that's that's you know a very small percentage. There's 30.2 mm-hmm. million businesses in the United States. That's a very small percentage, you know, of these tech companies. I mean, they're out there, you know, and yes, they, they'll sell for millions, billions in a, in a short period of time. But that's not the majority of the businesses. Mm-hmm. Now, that might become, you know, more prevalent as more start as more people are, you know, starting companies, especially given COVID. That might become more prevalent. But right now, that's not you know, that's a very small percentage of the 30.2 million companies. Right. Yeah. And yeah. yeah. And then with COVID, I mean, COVID makes things even worse. You know, you got 10,000 restaurants that are closing down right now, Mm -hmm. uh, not to mention a lot of other industries, but COVID has also spiked other industries. There were industries before that were dying before COVID that are now thriving and some that were thriving are now dying. So it's like anytime you have a catastrophic event occur, you really have to pivot 
and you have to do things differently. And that's why businesses are going out of business. You know, you got to ask yourself, why are 70% of businesses going out of business before COVID? And that's because they stopped doing what I call AIM. AIM is always innovate and market. Mm, okay. And they, they just keep doing business, same old, same old. That's what happened with Toys R Us. Toys R Us never changed anything in 70 years. <laughs> yeah. You got to do things differently. You can't keep doing business as you've always done it because consumers' buying habits have changed dramatically. Huh. Well, I mean, we've certainly seen that during this time for sure. And, and I think it's very dramatic and as well as things internally within companies have really shifted as well. You've, right. you've talked about the six P's a few times. So let's delve more into that. Um, so these are the things that you want, you, you think people should take into account in the process of considering a sale or a buyer, perhaps considering a purchase. So the first P uh, is people. So yeah. talk a bit about that. Sure. The reason why it's so important and the reason why I've dedicated six chapters to it is because it's your infrastructure. It's your foundation. And buyers want to buy a business that's healthy. They want a healthy business. They don't want to buy a job. They want to buy a business, a healthy business that operates on all six cylinders. So most businesses don't operate on all six cylinders. So the first P is people. A lot of businesses are not sellable. You know, again, Steve Forbes says eight out of 10 businesses will not sell. 80%, I mean, that's a pretty startling statistic. Yeah. And the number one reason they don't sell is because a business owner is attached to the business and ah. the business can't run without the business owner. So entrepreneurs, you know, kind of get stuck. Well, they're control freaks. So they like to do everything themselves. You can't do that. You don't build a business, you build people and people build a business. Yeah. So you got to have the right people in the right seat. And you always have to ask the who question, who opens the doors, who deals with clients, who deals with legal, who deals with accounting, who deals with manufacturing, logistics, transportation, environmental, who, 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 the clue is you should never be next to the who. You want the business to run without you. So you want to build a business that is sustainable and you can take off for two, three, four or five months at a time. And it doesn't matter because the business doesn't need you to function. And if you're trying to sell a business, you know, you, especially a business over, you know, five million, six million, ten million $10 million, you need to have a layer of management as well. So you want to have your chief operating officer. You want to have your chief financial officer. You need to have that layer of management. When buyers come in and look at the business, one of the number one things they look at is people. Do you have the right people in place? Do you have the right team? And let me tell you, it's a, it's a competitive market. When you're trying to sell your business, it's extremely competitive. There's 30.2 million businesses in the United States at any given time, 30 to 40% are up for sale. Hmm. So if you don't have your ducks in a row, they're not going to buy you. They'll buy another business. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's the the tangible aspect that I think is really easy to grasp. You want the right folks there, people who can do the jobs that are required, good leadership. But what about so the intangibles like culture? Is that something that buyers should take a look oh, at? Culture or? is very important. But if you don't have people to begin with, you're not going to have any culture, are you? Sure. sure. <laughs> so the first thing that they're going to look at is the people. How mm. long have the people been there? What's the 10, you know, how long have they been there? Uh, what are their roles and responsibilities? You know, are they um, are they long-term employees? Do they have contracts in place? Do they have non-competes? Buyers will not buy companies if there's not employee, employment contracts and non-competes for upper management. 
So you really got to look at all that. Yes, culture is important, especially if you're merging the companies. Mm -hmm. Now, if a buyer is just buying the business and not merging it with their current existing operations, then culture might not be as um, as a, as imperative as if you are merging. Does that make mm. sense? Yeah, no, I totally see that. I, I guess I asked because there's a, a quote by um, <clears throat> Pete Drucker, uh, the famous management consultant that um, culture eats strategy for breakfast. So it indicates the obvious great deal of, there's a great deal of importance around having a, a good culture in place. Well, I think it's imperative to have a good culture. You know, if you look at some of the most successful companies in the world, like Zappos, they have one of the best cultures of all, right? Mm -hmm. And one of the best models at all, at all. So yes, of course, buyers look at culture. But again, you know, if if you don't have any people, if you don't have any people, then you have no culture. Mm -hmm. If you have good people, then if you have good people and they're long-term, and everything's in place, then the culture's probably there. Does that make mm. sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and another, I'm going ahead. Go ahead, Michelle. Yeah. And I was going to say, you know, as far as that quote goes, culture eats strategy for breakfast. I agree with that because you can have the best strategy in the world, but if you don't have the right mindset, if you don't have the right culture, if you don't have the right philosophies and the values and ethics, then the strategies will never be implemented correctly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, another one of the six P's is product. So we're talking about niche or IP or... No, what we're really talking about is your industry, your product, your industry. Is your your product industry on the way up or on the way out? Mm -hmm. Do you have an Amazon or do you have a Blockbuster? And there are a lot of industries dying right now because of COVID. There are a lot of industries thriving right now because of COVID. So you have to ask yourself about your industry. Is it thriving or is it dying? So there's a lot of industries that are dying that may never come back. Um, so you really, you really got to figure that out because if you're in a dying industry, then you're not going to be able to, it's like Blockbuster. Block, blockbuster, were they, are they in a dying industry or a thriving industry? They're in a dying industry because of Netflix and all the live streaming, right? Mm-hmm. So Blockbuster ended up going out of business. So what you have to really do, if, if you are in an industry that's going under, and there are a lot of industries are, that are going under because of technology and because, you know, things are just evolving so quickly, you have to really ask yourself three basic questions. I call these transformational questions because most entrepreneurs have become trans, transactional and they stop being transformational. You don't grow unless you're transformational. You're either growing or dying. And Amazon asked these three questions back in the 90s. Number one, they asked themselves, what business are we in? They said, well, we're in a book selling business. We sell books. That's our product. What do we do really, really well? We do fulfillment really well, better than anybody. And then they asked themselves, what business should we be in? You know, what should we pivot into? And I said, we should pivot into fulfillment. Mm -hmm. Those three transformational questions transformed Amazon to a small bookseller to a multi-worldwide billion dollar conglomerate. Yeah. Yeah. So you really got to pay attention to your product. That's why 70% of businesses are going out of business. That's one of the main reasons because they haven't innovated. Well, Amazon's an interesting example because I read something recently about Amazon in the sense that it's valued incredibly highly, but its profit margin is actually relatively small. So I would have, I would think that if Amazon was put up for sale, people would 
jump at the opportunity to buy it. So that's an interesting kind of anomaly almost. Well, you know, you, you, you say the profit margin is small, but without really getting in there and normalizing the financials and looking at what Jeff Be- Bezos takes <laughs> right. and looking at, you know, um, I, without normalizing the financials and really looking at, like I said, what Jeff Bezos takes, you know, um, all of that kind of stuff, the company probably is profitable because mm-hmm. Je- Jeff Bezos is making a ton of money, right? <laughs> Yeah, so I hear. <laughs> so, you know, we can't just say something's not profitable because that's what we hear. You mm. know, I, the, the first time I look at a business, you know, and I look at the tax returns, and if it has $70,000 net income, everybody's first reaction is like, oh my gosh, this company's not making any money. They're making 70 grand. But by the time we normalize the financials, they might be making half a million. Hmm. Well, and that's where an MA, uh, a mergers and acquisitions advisor, comes in. Um, I think. Some people think it might be a more straightforward process. They can handle it themselves. But <laughs> your your advice, for obvious reasons, is that you involve an M and A advisor. So, what what kind well, of you have to? Because I mean, look, if you need a heart surgery, you're going to rip open your chest, pull your heart out, and cut and operate on your heart. No, <laughs> why would you operate on your most valuable asset? You know, why would you try to sell your most valuable asset by yourself? Most business owners have no idea what the business is worth, and they don't know how to value a business. Hmm. And that you know, it's more of an art. Than a science. And again, you know, you can, we can have a value for a business, but we might sell that business for 65% more because we created a bidding war. Mm. Well, and, and you come in and, and offer advice on how to build a business before the sale too. Is that yes, right? We spe- yes. I specialize in buying, selling, fixing, growing. Mm. So like I said, eight out of 10 businesses won't sell. If I don't help the business owner tweak that business beforehand, in all likelihood, that business is not going to sell or it's not going to sell for the for the price tag that the owner needs. Hmm. Well, there's an interesting uh, sale that happened recently, uh, New Belgium Brewing, uh, a couple of years ago now, mm-hmm. where uh, it was operating under an ESOP, an employee uh, mm-hmm. ownership plan. And um, it was interesting because it was purchased by a large uh, multinational and the, the ESOP fell by the wayside. But is, is an ESOP ever an attractive component for a buyer and something they might want to retain? So, so for a buyer, um, I mean, typically in ESOP, the business is selling to the employees. Yeah. So you're saying the buyer came in and bought it from the employees? Yes, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, again, it depends upon the price. It depends upon the structure. It depends upon the industry. It depends upon the company. Mm. Why are the employees selling it? You know, that own the company. Is it because they're aging out? There's right. so many factors that come into play just before we can determine if somebody's interested in something. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Well, let's get back to the, the six P's. So we talked about people and product. What's, mm. uh, what's, the next one that people well, so should... the next one is is really big and systematic, and it's usually never thought of. Just like exits are never thought of, right? is processes. Processes are huge. You need to systemize your business. You need to make sure that not only can the business run without you because you have the right people in place, but you also have the right processes in place. And most business owners don't really think about processes until something happens. You know, something gets hurt on a manufacturing floor. Oh, we need a health and safety process for that. Mm-hmm. Or if a client complains and blasts it all over the internet, oh, we need a process for customer service. You know, so processes really should be designed from the beginning and they should be designed with the customer experience in mind. And to illustrate that, did you have you ever watched the movie The Founder based upon yes. the McDonald's brothers? Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So 
So do you remember back in the 1940s? So Ray Kroc is the one who grew McDonald's, but the McDonald brothers started McDonald's in the 40s. And back in the 40s, they had the drive-up type Sonic type restaurants, uh, but they never perfected the process back then. The food was always cold. The order was always wrong. And it always took so long. So McDonald's brothers said, we want to develop a, a fast food restaurant and maybe perhaps franchise it one day. And then they said, okay, here's our mission. Here's our vision. Most importantly, here's our customer experience. This is what we want our customers to, to receive when they come to McDonald's. They, mm-hmm. We want them to get great tasting food that's hot, that's served quickly, two minutes or less. How do we develop the processes around that customer experience? Do you remember when they took all their employees and went out to the tennis court, the empty tennis court? Yes. <laughs> they took chalk. They, they rolled all over the tennis courts and then they practiced. They practiced all day. They erased it. They started over. They practiced all day. Who's going who's gonna to take the order? Who's going to toast the buns? Who's going to cook the burger? Who's going to put the pickles on the buns and give it to the clients two minutes or less? Because that process was developed back in the 40s, of course, it's been tweaked along the way. But because it was developed with the customer experience in mind, that's why you can eat at a McDonald's anywhere around the world and receive the same experience. Right. And so most business owners, have you ever dealt with a company where you're like, oh my gosh, this is the worst customer service ever? Mm -hmm. It's because their process is broken. They don't have a process designed to enhance the customer experience. Yeah. So processes have to be designed with the customer experience in mind. And they also have to be productive, efficient, and have policies and procedure manuals. I mean, so many business owners um, don't have their policies documented. And when a buyer goes to buy a business, one of the first things they're going to look at is your people. They're going to look at the employee handbooks. They're going to look at the policy and procedure manuals and the SOP checklist. Right. Yeah. Something documented to reflect what's actually going on. Right. And getting all the data out of the owner's head. I mean, we have a business we're trying to sell. We've been trying to sell it for a while. It's two owners, um, partners, equal partners. They're nearly approaching their 80s and they own a fabrication company and they have four employees. All Hmm. the data is in their head. They're like, Michelle, we can fabricate anything for any business, you know, very quickly. And I'm like, yes, you can, but nobody else can. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so you exactly. really need those processes and you need to make sure that everything, you know, goes from the owner's head onto paper. Yeah. Well, related to that, I mean, yeah, absolutely. So much knowledge, even when you, even when you go to great lengths to document knowledge still resides in people's brains. So what are some ways to retain people during the sales process? What are things you can, you can employ for that? So one of the, one of the big things is we don't tell employees that the business owner is selling. And we strongly encourage that the owner doesn't tell employees either (laughs) because you want to maintain confidentiality, confidentiality, is the number one thing that can kill a business during the sales process because employees get nervous. They think a new owner is going to come in and terminate them or, you know, change their pay. Um, clients don't like it. They think a new owner is going to come in and not do things the same way, not provide, you know, superior customer service. So mm-hmm. confidentiality is, is number one of importance. The only time that we ever get employees involved is, is if it's high level employees, uh, like a chief financial officer or maybe a chief operating officer, but mostly the CFO because we need the financials. Hmm. Um, other than that, it is not communicated to the employee. We sold a business for $18 million. And um, I told uh, the owner over and over again, don't tell your employees. 
He had, uh, I think like 100, 125 employees. What does he do? He goes, he, this was one owner that did the opposite of everything I told him to do. <laughs> so he told his employees. So several walked out the door that day uh-huh. and one demanded that they would stay, but they want a double salary. Uh-huh. So you don't tell your employees, not uh-huh. a good thing. Not a good thing at all. We, we have another business we're selling right now, a dental lab, and um, it's a private equity group buying them. And the buyers were adamant about meeting the employees and letting the employees know what well, a seller was adamant about not doing it. So we waited till we got all the way through due diligence and signed off on due diligence. And, um, and then, you know, they came, they flew in and they set up a meeting, a dinner. So they took all the employees to dinner and they said, we're partnering, we're partnering. They didn't say we're buying. They said, we're partnering mm-hmm. um, so, because the employees have a very good relationship with the current owner. They don't know the new owners. Right. You know, and so anyway, they said we're partnering and they haven't closed yet. The close has been pushed back because of uh, funding. And, you know, it takes forever to get things banked right now because mm. of the economy. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, if that if that doesn't go through, it wasn't so much a sell. It was a partner. And they couldn't agree on terms. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. So you don't want to tell your employees. And and if you do have key employees that you feel like you have to tell then there are lots of, of owners that really, really care about their employees and they'll offer, offer um, you know, a payout when a sale happens mm-hmm. and, um, and a payout, you know, if they're going to stay on for, for so long because the new owner is going to need them to stay on, obviously. But they'll offer, you know, you know like a, a flat fee. You know, I've seen them offer 100000 I've seen them offer 50000 It's all across the board. Yeah. Interesting. And that's just for key employees, though. Yeah. That's interesting because I I was thinking about it from a transparency standpoint and that people might be more motivated to stay if they're involved in the process. But yeah, I see see your point. I've been doing this 20 years, over a thousand transactions. Yeah. And no, never (laughs) because there are so many moving parts. So, so many intricate details. Sure. A deal can fall apart at any given time and is a roller coaster ride. We don't Mm -hmm. want the employees to be attached to that, you know, be part of that um, roller coaster experience. We want employees to do their job, keep the business running smoothly, you know, keep the business trending upward. And it's a, it's a, it's a roller coaster ride for the seller to take. And it's an emotional up and down. I mean, I've had sellers say, I can't do this anymore. Michelle, it's too emotional. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's too, it's too hard. And I'm the one doing all the work. (laughs) (laughs) But um, so we definitely don't want employees to, to go through that emotional roller coaster. And then they might just jump ship and say, well, you know what? I'm going to go over here because there's too much uncertainty over here. Uh, people like certainty. They don't like uncertainty. So, you mm. know, they don't like change. They want things to stay the same. So it doesn't really make any sense to tell the employees. Hmm. Well, in related to that, how do you keep customers in that process? I mean, I heard you say that you don't share with customers it's happening. What can... What can uh, yeah. purchase buyers do to reassure customers once the news is out? So, so typically part of due diligence, depending upon the size of the company, you know, we typically handle larger sales, $10 million and up. In a due diligence cycle, um, <clears throat> the buyer will want to be able to either contact a couple of, of clients as a survey 
you know, not saying they're buying the business, but conduct a survey to, to, to see if the buyer, the customers are happy with the business and happy with this, you know, happy with doing happy and are going to continue to do business, but they don't announce themselves that they're buying the business. And, um, if there are contracts involved, and this is part of my fourth P, which is proprietary, if there are contracts involved and the contracts are not transferable, and I will tell you pretty much 100% of owners do not have the two-sentence transferability clause in their contracts. Hmm. And 99.9% .9 of all sales are asset sales, not stock sales. So if you have 200 contracts and they're not transferable, yeah. then I always encourage my clients to get that done before we go to due diligence with a buyer. Um, many of them don't listen. And so then we're scrounging during due diligence to get the buyers to agree to all the transfers. So it would be very prudent for every single business owner to put the transferability clause because when you go get ready to sell your business, you don't have to worry about that. There's been a lot of deals fall apart because the contracts are not transferable. Yeah. Um, as far as once the buyer buys the business, a lot of times it just depends upon the structure of the transaction. If there's a seller financing component or if there's an earnout component, then a lot of times they'll say they're partnering. They don't say that they outright bought the company. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. Well, and yeah. obviously they want to keep the owner around because the owner is the one that can make all those introductions right. and make sure, you know, to ensure, ensure a smooth transition. Yeah. How do people usually fare in that post-sale period owners? Because it's, uh, you know, obviously there's personal differences, but um, do people generally stay around for a certain period of time to facilitate that? And usually how long is that? And what can they do to make that more of a yeah. comfortable experience? So they the answer is always, it depends. <laughs> sure. And, and, and small businesses, there's always a training period and larger. And that training period is included in the sale of the business um, and larger and <clears throat> larger businesses, especially <clears throat> when we don't add back the salaries and things of that nature of the owners, you know, the, the owner typically will have to stay on for a period of time. And now that could be six months. It could be one year. It could be two years. It depends upon the complexity of the business it depends upon how many employees they have and management team and how well that business can function without the owner. Um, also, in larger transactions, a lot of buyers are buying a percentage. They're not buying 100%. Mm -hmm. So they'll buy 70%, 80%, 90% and keep the owner on you know, with their salary, with their benefits, with a percentage. Mm, okay. Well, there's, uh, I would think, a balance between... Um, actual profits. So another one of the six P's that, that a buyer might look at versus profit potential, or should profit potential not even be considered in a... In a no, it, it should definitely be considered, um, especially when you are in the middle of COVID, it should be considered because sure. if a business owner is trying to sell their business in 2020, it's their worst year ever. Why would we base the business just on 2020, we're going to look at, you know, 2017, 2018, 2019, and we're going to do five years projections going forward. Mm -hmm. projections, projections get tricky when you're basing it off of 2020. That's why we're not based it off of 2020. We would base it off of a three-year or four-year average. And so when we, when we evaluate businesses, we always include an average. Um, even, you know, some industries have the opposite effect. They have an anomaly in 2020 because their business spiked, Right. Mm -hmm. Well, they're not going to get paid just off 2020. 
<laughs> because right. 2020 was the best year ever. It's still going to yeah. be an average. But yeah. then we're going to run out those projections, but those projections are not just going to be based on 2020. And we take all that in, into consideration. So when we evaluate biz- businesses, we look at the asset approach. We look at uh, future earnings. We look at market approach, industry approach, the six Ps, discounted cash flow. We look at all of that. And then we put together an average. But yes, you should look at projections. However, I always tell my clients, buyers will not buy a business. It's called the buyer sanity check. Buyers will not buy a business without without potential, but they're not going to pay you for that potential because you have to still pay money to earn that potential. You might have to spend more money in marketing, more money in employee costs, more money in uh, software. You know, sure. you have to, to spend money to make money. But they're not going to buy your company if it doesn't have potential. A lot of business owners are wanting to get paid on potential, and that's not that's not going to happen. Now we do, like I said, take into consideration projections, but that's really to give the buyer peace of mind that this business is trending up, not trending down. Yeah. Ah, huh, interesting. Well, my last question for you before we go to the rapid round, and that is around. Companies that are focused on impact, so making social or environmental change happen, they sometimes have a mission lock in place. Is that something that you work with and and it can work to a company's advantage? What's your experience been with Wait, What do you mean by mission lock? There are companies that um, want to, even in a sale, want to retain the ability of the company to have the kind of impact that they've been focused on and they want to see that carried forward. So in a sale situation, mm-hmm. and there are M&A companies that um, have uh, to deal with companies um, with mission locks primarily, it's really a way of retaining the founder's vision moving forward. Yeah, it's really the same thing. And you're talking about nonprofits? Nope. Uh, these yep. are for-profit companies. Okay. Yeah, it's really the same thing as selling someone's legacy. You know, I always I always take my clients, my business owners, through a series of exercises. And one is I really want them to prioritize the most important things to them in the sale of the business. And it's not always price. A lot of people think, oh, it's price, it's price, it's price. It's not always price. Mm-hmm. A lot of time, it's what you just said. It's that somebody's going to take their vision and grow it. They're going to take their legacy and grow it. Mm-hmm. They're going to you know, continue the culture, continue their mission, continue their vision. They're not just going to change everything. And a lot of buyers don't want to come in and change everything. They're buying an existing you know, machine that's operating and they don't want to come in and fix what's not what's not broken. Mm-hmm. Um, so how do we sell that? Well, we make sure we find the right buyer. <laughs> you know, right. we're right. not going to bring them a private equity group that is only interested in dismantling the company and taking pieces and parts. Mm-hmm. So we want to make sure that we find the right buyer. You know, there's five different types of buyers. We have about twenty eight thousand buyers in our in our database, and um, you know, you just got to make sure you find the right buyer that believes in that system, believes in those values, believes in, in, in the owner's mission and will continue on. Yeah, sure. Well, it's something for the seller to keep in mind too, that it's, uh, you know, just to, to keep that in mind as you're going through the process. Yeah, but the sellers also at some point have to not, you know, they have to stop being emotional about their business. Their business is not their baby. Their business is their asset. Hmm. And if you are emotionally tied to your business, and you really haven't figured out what you're going to do next, you haven't planned your beginning strategy, you'll never move forward with your exit strategy. 
Yeah, yeah, it makes sense. Well, Michelle, I, I always uh, wrap up these interviews with uh, three questions around impact. So are you game to answer some of those? Well, do I have a choice? <laughs> you have you can say, forget it. We're moving on. <laughs> no, go ahead, Ursula. Give me okay. your best shot. <laughs> Great. Okay. The first question is, what's the biggest thing you've learned about having impact? Um, I, you know, I give a lot of, I donate a lot of money. I've, I've donated money and time um, to Make-A-Wish Foundation. One of my very best friends who was a founder of Make-A-Wish Foundation, Frank Shankowitz, who unfortunately has passed away. Uh, he just recently passed away. I don't know if you've heard of him. And no, um, there's a movie named uh, Wishman. It's about his life story. Hmm. But, um, you know, I've been to several different charitable events with him. Um, I do give back to Make-A-Wish Foundation and also St. Jude's children, you know, are close and dear to my heart. I am having my daughter, who is 10, adopt an orphan from a Puerto Rico orphanage. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, teaching her, look, if you want a new toy, you have to give away a toy. <laughs> <laughs> you don't get something about giving something to somebody else that, that really needs it more than you do. Mm -hmm. And so I think, you know, it's important to really... You know, I'll take her to like a store, a Walmart or something and, you know, pick out the family that we feel needs the biggest help and we'll buy their groceries. Hmm. And so cool. I think it's really important to, you know, really, really tie your business. And, and I'm actually starting a nonprofit, but to really attach your business to a nonprofit that's really near and dear to your heart. And because, you know, being in business is not all about money. It's about making an impact and helping others. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I totally agree. Well, the second question is, what's the one thing you've cons consistently done that's contributed to your success and impact the most? Um, you know, a lot of stuff. Um, I, number one, always, always give gratitude. I'm always, you know, thankful. Try to do it before my hit feet, my feet hit the floor, but I get up at 4.45 a.m., so that's not always easy. <laughs> wow. That's really good. So, so, yeah, but I try to, you know, give gratitude every morning, what I'm thankful for. I give gratitude every night. Um, when I put my daughter to bed, I have her, you know, tell God what she's thankful for and what she needs help with. And same with me. Um did, did that answer the question? I think I forgot what the yeah. question was. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. It did. Yeah. Oh, success, success. Yeah. I always, you know, always say your network equals your net worth. So, uh, you know, I always say, well, if you want to be poor, hang out with poor people. If you want to be rich, hang out with rich people. If successful, hang out with successful people. You know, you are, you are who you hang out with. Your network equals your net worth. And I have a really strong influence, a, a strong circle, a very powerful not, not, well, when I say powerful, what I mean is successful, I guess, not powerful, successful. That was the wrong word. Mm -hmm. And um, I go to a lot of different conferences. I read a lot of books. You know, if I'm going to watch a movie, I want to watch a movie based upon a true story. So it's educational. And, you know, I have certain routines that I keep up with that, that I think contribute to success. I listen Great. to Bob Proctor. I, you know, I listen to different tapes. I don't really listen to music in my car. Mm -hmm. I also, and my daughter has to listen to Bob Proctor too. <laughs> <laughs> Getting an early education. That's Absolutely. Great. Yeah. Well, the last question is what's one piece of advice or an insight you'd share with another business owner who's asking themselves, how can I positively affect my world? 
Yeah. So I would, you know, I always, I've always told clients, business owners to really look at what's important to you. You know, everybody has something that means something valuable to them. You know, for me, it's children. You know, I, children are near and dear to my heart. My nonprofit is going to be centered around children, you know, but find out, you know, it could be animal shelters, find out what's important to you, you know, what you really, really, really care about. And, you know, either, um, you know, make a, a, a conscious effort to give a percentage to that charity every month or start your own nonprofit. You know, mm. so many business owners go out there and start their own nonprofit. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. No, to give good. an impact. Yeah. yeah. And then, you know, an and impact can be s- something so simple as buying somebody's groceries. Mm-hmm. Right. It can be so simple as being at a restaurant and seeing that somebody looks like maybe they're struggling to pay and you pick up their meal. Yeah. Yeah. No, so you can make an impact. You don't have to make a lot of money to make an impact. You know, h- however, the more successful you are, the more money and time you have to donate. Have you ever noticed that the people that, are really, really, really successful, typically always say yes? Yeah. Well, do you think that's true? I think people I do. Sort of, I do. in a discerning way say yes, but if they said yes to everything they were asked. Well, they don't say that yes to everything, but they have more yeah. time yeah. to donate. That's they true. have more time to donate money. They have more time to donate, you know, their time, right? Mm-hmm. And sure. um, people who are, are really not successful or, you know, not really making an impact, don't really have the money to donate. Maybe they have the time, but they, they don't do it. There's mm-hmm. just so many little things that we can do every single day and teach our children. And I think that's the most important thing is teach our children every single day that's really important to help somebody else. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you can do it without spending a lot of money. You can do it just by helping an old lady, helping somebody elderly walk across the street, right? Sure. Yeah, <laughs> Open a door for somebody or somebody fell. You know, I, I, I remember one time my husband and I were leaving Jazz Fest and this poor elderly man fell and everybody just walked right past him. Oh, wow. And we stopped and helped him, but there were probably 25 people before us that walked past him. Yeah. Well, it sounds like you had impact that day for him. Yeah. So, so that's impact, great. it can be, you know, it can be very small. It can be very big, you know, but. Yeah. Every day you can make an impact. You can help change. You can help somebody or help change somebody's life. Yes, absolutely. Yep. Well, Michelle, thank you so much for sharing your obviously really deep knowledge of this area of selling a business. And um, I think it's going to be really helpful to people to start thinking about planning for that instead of it being, a, a, as you said, a catastrophic situation um, decision or, or uh, even a uh, one without a considered past history right. to it. So, so thank you so much for sharing all of that and for being here today. Well, thank you, Ursula. Thank you so much for having me. It's my pleasure. If people want to get in touch with you, uh, where would they reach out to you and where can they buy your book? Sure. So I would encourage everyone who is thinking about starting a business, buying a business, owning a business to go buy Exit Rich. And we're in the middle of pre-sales. You can buy Exit Rich on Amazon. Uh, but you can also get it at exitrichbook.com. Exitrichbook.com is less expensive than Amazon. It's $24.79, which includes your shipping. Mm-hmm. And we will send you an immediate download of Exit Rich. So you don't have to wait till the book launch. You can start yeah. reading it today. Great. And we'll ship the hardcover to your doorstep. 
Plus, you will get a lifetime membership into Exit Rich Book Club. Exit Rich Book Club is filled of content uh, with me talking about different strategies, techniques of how to build a sustainable, scalable, and when you're ready, sellable business. Plus, we have documentation. <laughs> so a lot of clients ask me, well, Michelle, I've never seen an organizational chart or employee handbook or non-compete or sellers, you know, buy, sellers will say, I don't even know what a letter of intent looks like or mm. a purchase agreement or, you know, closing docs or due diligence checklist. If you went to an attorney and tried to, to put together or create all these documents, it would probably cost you $20,000, 25000 mm. They're there for your immediate review and download. Mm. That's great. And if, you, if there's something not there that you need, email me because I have all the documents. <laughs> <laughs> and then we also are giving a lifetime, uh, not a lifetime, I'm sorry, a 30-day membership into Club CEOs, which is an entrepreneurial organization where we do you know, we ask those transformational questions like what business are you in? What business should you be in? And we really help business owners pivot and not only survive this pandemic, but come on the other side of this and thrive so they too can exit rich. Great. And how do people access club CEOs? Is that a URL? So, so not that, well, they have to buy the book. Okay. So they buy the book. And when they buy the book, then we send them an email that gives them all their access and their memberships. Gotcha. Okay, great. Wonderful. Well, thank you, Michelle, and thank you so much for the work you're doing in the world. Thank you. I was going to give everyone one other place to find me, if that's okay. Sure. They can text Michelle to 888-526-5750. And when they do that, all of my websites will, po will pop up along with all of my social media. Ah, okay. Wonderful. Well, that's an easy right. way to find you in all kinds of platforms. So that's fantastic. Yes. Thank you. Thank you, Ursula. It was a pleasure. Pleasure for me too. Thank, thanks, Michelle. Thanks for listening. Join me for more episodes. Subscribe on your favorite podcast app and help us spread the word. Rate and review the podcast on Apple Podcasts. To discover more about your impact, schedule a business impact assessment one-on-one -on -one with me 60 minutes of focus on your and your company's impact and how you can increase it. Go to workalchemy.com BIA to schedule your business impact assessment. This podcast is produced on the traditional lands of the Cherokee, Tuscarora, Catawba, and Waccamaw Sioux and people. 